So our scripture reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll be starting in verse 17. Paul wrote, now in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Indeed, there have to be fractions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. When you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper, for when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper, and one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What, do you not have homes to eat or drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you? In this matter, I do not commend you. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and the blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves, and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you are hungry, eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. About the other things, I will give instructions when I come. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So why relationships? Why are relationships so important that we have to uh, give a five-week sermon series to them? Well, let me ask this question first. Are the Ten Commandments important? So... uh, Are the Ten Commandments important? (laughs) Yes, okay, all right. Well then, I wanna show you this quote from Rick Warren. It says, four of the Ten Commandments deal with our relationship to God while the other six deal with our relationship with people. But all 10 are about relationships. So do you see that when we take something as as important to us in Scripture as the Ten Commandments, and we start to peel back the layers, and it's not just a list of, of do's and don'ts. It's all about how to live as God's people in relationship with God and one another that we start to realize just how important relationships are. 
Recently, I read from a Harvard professor that in their research at Harvard, people that had good, healthy relationships were healthier and happier, period, he said, in quotes. Healthier and happier. In fact, what they found is, is that people with good, healthy relationships often have lower stress levels. They don't have to carry all the worries that they have just on themselves alone, but they have other people in their lives that can help shoulder the weight. Not only that, they often say that they have grown to become more mature because the relationships that they're in require them to learn and to grow and to think about others other than just thinking about themselves. And they also say that having good, real, healthy relationships give them a support system that they need in life, especially when things go wrong. Because they have cared for other people or they have let other people care for them, they have developed this social structure, this, this in a sense, you know, security system for themselves because they have done the hard work of developing those relationships. Good, healthy relationships set us up for success in life and help us live more faithfully. In fact, there have been studies about the happiest countries in the world. And do you know that these happiest countries, even though they might be in some of the coldest places, like Sweden, have some of the happiest people and they found it's because of the social structure they have in place. There's such an emphasis on relationships in those areas that they have people to turn to. They have all of those things that we talked about. Healthy relationships make happier people. And lonelier countries actually report having fewer emphases in their communities on relationships. And I'm the bearer of bad news today. You may have seen it. There was a recent survey that was done of the entire United States. This was reported in AL.com that Birmingham is in the top 10 loneliest cities in the United States. They reported that part of their research was done because they have 40,000 or about 40,000 single person homes in Birmingham, about 44% of the population here in Birmingham. Now, I happen to believe that you can be in a single person household and still not be lonely because of the relationships you have. So there's hopefully more data to that. But it just goes to show you that even in a place like Birmingham, there can be an epidemic of loneliness, a lack of good and healthy relationships. And here's another shocker. Also on that list is Washington, D.C., do you want to be on the same list as Washington, D.C. and when it comes to relationships? Okay, so do you see how important relationships are, especially to people of faith? We have a God who has established the possibility of having a deep and healthy relationship with him. And it's inviting, he's inviting us to not only have that relationship, but to extend it to one another. So why did we look at the passage from 1 Corinthians about the church in Corinth? Now, if you know much about the church in Corinth, if you looked at the New Testament, you know that there are two letters from Paul to the Corinthians, 1 and 2 Corinthians. 
Uh, those are two of the three letters that we're aware of that were sent by Paul to this congregation. Scholars don't know if we've lost that second letter or if somehow it was edited into 2 Corinthians. We're not really sure. But three letters that Paul sent to this church in Corinth because of all the problems that they were having. And in fact, if you read the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, you know that this was a church that was divided. They were divided into factions on which pastor to believe or which pastor to support and which version of the truth was actually correct. And instead of working it out, they just went into their camps and sat there. Some people said that they were fans of Paul, the evangelist. Other people were fans of, of Apollos or Cephas. All of these different camps were factions and they were not actually building healthy relationships in the body of Christ. Well, as we continue, we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that Pastor Michael read for us today, and we see that there was another fraction, another way in which the church was divided, and it had to do with communion. Now, you have to understand that when we're talking about Holy Communion in the church here in Corinth, we're not talking about what you might experience in most churches today. You didn't show up to church in Corinth back in the first century, hold out your hands and get a piece of bread and a sip of grape juice. That's not how it worked. In fact, in the first century, they didn't even really have large sanctuaries to come to. Most of these worship services happened in people's homes. And the practice of Holy Communion was to have a full meal. It was to lay out food, you know, lots of food, and to come together and to celebrate the Lord, his death and his resurrection, to have a big old meal with bread and plenty of wine. This was a celebration. And what happened in Corinth, allegedly, is that the people who made the meal, the people who had more freedom in their lives because they were no longer working or they were maybe more wealthy and didn't have to work, is that they got to the meal early. And like hungry people at a church potluck, they devoured all the fried chicken and left all the little triangle sandwiches for all the people that got there late. That's what was happening. The, the wealthy or the people with less responsibilities in their lives got there early. They ate everything up. They drank everything up. And the people who were poorer, the people who had more responsibilities, who got there on time or a little bit late, had nothing. They had no food. They were sort of treated like second thoughts, you know, like they were lower class citizens within the church. And Paul says, this is wrong. He, he sounds like a parent, you know, saying, I'm not very happy with you right now. He says, I do not commend you. <laughs> Paul's not happy with them because they're not committed to each other. This is a church meeting together, celebrating the Lord's meal, and they're not committed to each other. They are committed to themselves or to their friends. They make sure that they have what they need, but the people who come late are not treated fairly or equally. That's a lack of commitment. That is, that is a lip service to commitment to people that you're in a relationship with, you're within a church with. But when it comes to it, your actions fall short of what you say. 
Paul makes another point that's really important for us to understand. And and that is that even though somebody provided the house for this meal, even though somebody made the food for this meal, it's still not their meal. They don't get a chance to say who can be at the table or who can't. It's Christ's meal. Jesus is the one who invites people to the table. It's Jesus who says who is equal and who is not. And Paul says to them, they should wait for each other. They should wait for each other so that all have what they need. And in the Greek, we find out from uh, folks like N.T. Wright, some of these scholars, that the word in Greek is not really specifically you should wait for each other, more like you should be in a sense, waiting for people who are equal to you to join together at the meal. So it's not just a sense of people being polite and waiting. It's understanding that they're just as important as you and they should have what you have. They should have the same seat, the same meal, the same opportunity as you. That's what Paul is saying is that when you're in a church, you should be committed to everyone just like they are equal to you because that's the way that Jesus treats all of us. I want you to remember that Jesus washed every single disciple's feet at the Last Supper, according to the Gospel of John, even Judas. Jesus treats us all equally. And communion should be set up in a way that treats everyone equally. And Pastor Michael, we got really dangerously close. If we didn't have an excellent communion team, we almost committed the sin of 1 Corinthians 11 on Christmas Eve at four. We had somewhere around a thousand people show up and we had a communion for 840. We almost, we, we almost didn't get commended by Paul. But we had the people in the back making sure we had enough grape juice so that everybody was able to participate. Commitment. Making sure that if we're in a relationship, we are really in it. If we're in a relationship, we are really making room for one another at the table. In a relationship, you've got to make sure that you're all in if it's going to be a core relationship, a healthy relationship. I skipped over a slide, and I would love to come back to it, uh, about our core elements of real relationships. And it's on the screen. Uh, There it is. Uh, It's on the screen, our core elements of relationships. Commitment, oneness, respect, and evolving together. Core, C-O-R-E. These help make real, lasting, healthy relationships. So today we're starting with commitment, being committed to one another. Now, what do I mean by this? When I was in middle school, uh, my father ended up telling my brother and I one day that he and my mother were going to separate. They were going to, of course, go towards divorce. And that's what happened. My parents divorced sometime around when I was in the sixth or seventh grade. And I, as a young person, saw the emotional toll that it took on my parents. I could see the hurt in both of them. Um, You know, for a while, we ended up being at my mom's house mostly during the week and every other weekend, but every other weekend we were at my dad's apartment until he was uh, remarried and they bought a house. And so I was going to that house every other weekend. And that was sort of my life 
as a young person, and I know it took a toll on me, I saw what it took on my little brother. And, you know, as a young person, I made one of those, those statements that sometimes we all make. And I said, I will never get divorced, <laughs> no matter what. Because I saw the toll. Now, I, I am not trying to shame anyone. I'm just saying that I saw what happened in my home and I wanted to make that decision. So I remember when Julie and I were uh, engaged, we were meeting with the person who was going to do our wedding, and that was Bishop Bob Morgan, who was the pastor at, uh, at Vestavia Hills. He became the bishop in Mississippi and Kentucky. He was a huge influence in my wife's life, and he did our premarital counseling, and I remember uh, that we did it all in one day. He normally did these large sessions. He was very important, so he would have people come to his premarital counseling, and he had a, he had a PowerPoint presentation. But because it was just us at his, at his mountain home, I sat on one side of Bishop Morgan and Julie sat on the other and we looked at his screen and we just went through the PowerPoint presentation. It was almost like we weren't responsible to sit to next to each other. We have had of an adult between us. But I remember in part of our premarital counseling telling Julie uh, and, and Bishop Morgan that, you know, I, divorce was off the table. And I told that whole story and that was part of my story. When, when we got married, we were still in seminary. We were still in school. And so about a year later, we moved here to Alabama. And I was new to the state. I was leaving behind most of my family. I was leaving behind all my friends and my support structures. And that's when things started becoming a little bit more clear to me. In my mind, I was thinking about how I didn't want to bring that kind of, of hurt to her or to any children that we might eventually have. But I realized that I was making a commitment to marriage and stability. And what I really needed to do was to make a commitment to Julie. It was not a commitment to be stuck with someone. <laughs> it was, and I'm sorry about that, you're stuck with me. Um, <laughs> It was a commitment to stick to one another. And I want you to understand the difference here about commitment. Sticking to one another, not sticking with one another. This is what commitment is for Christians. I want you to remember that in Genesis chapter 12, God picked one person and said to him, Abram, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, and you're going to have children that are going to be like the stars in the sky. Now, this is not a Birmingham sky. Have you ever been out to the, to the country, to the wilderness, and looked up at the stars? This is what Abram was looking at in the sky. And from that moment on, when that covenant was established, God was faithful to his people. He committed to them. He was all in. He did everything he could to pour into these people's lives and to build a relationship with them. Now, obviously, there were times when Israel and then the church responded with that same commitment, but there were also times when the commitment failed. But God remained steadfast. Now, notice, God didn't just stick with them Okay, he didn't just remain on their side. He was 
sticking with them through thick and thin. He was investing in their lives. This is the kind of commitment that we make in our core relationships, whether it's in our marriages, our friends, our family. We stick to each other. We invest in one another. We make room in our lives for one another. Commitment means doing the work, being all in, being present for one another, not just saying that you're committed. In 1 Corinthians, the people seemed to say they were committed, but they weren't actually following through with it. And sometimes we run the risk of doing this, either becoming so busy or to be pulled in so many directions or even to start shifting into taking care of ourselves more so than investing in the relationships that are there, that God has given to us, that God has shared with us. This, this is something that is pretty clear if you look in many different areas of life, even in leadership. I know that Auburn fans are probably tired of hearing all this, okay? But, but Nick Saban created the process, okay? And the process is about commitment if you boil it all down to that. He takes these young people, 18, 19, 20 years old, and he, and he gets them to say, I'm going to be committed to my role on the team, and I'm going to be committed to the plan, and I'm going to be committed to the team itself. I'm going to keep my energy and my focus all along the way. And what he says is, is if you follow through on those commitments, we have the chance to build excellence. If we lose our commitment and we don't stay focused, you don't follow through with your job, the team as a whole might fail. This applies throughout all the relationships, doesn't it? When we're committed, when we're all in and we pull our weight, things go better. Things are healthier. When we don't put our skin in the game, things don't seem to go as well. And other people know it. And they see our lack of commitment as a lack of investment, a lack of trust. And there starts to be a dissolving of the deepness in that relationship. Commitment, friends, means putting our skin in the game, you know, getting active, being invested, not only into whatever relationship it is, but into each other. Whether it's in our family, in our marriages, in our friendships, being committed. There was a night I remember clearly when Julie and I, we were living in our old home and one day we came home and someone had broken into our house. They had stolen her jewelry. They had stolen one of my watches and a couple other little things, some money and gone. And most of the jewelry was irreplaceable. It was family. And it was devastating. And we were hurt. Our kids were scared. And some of our best friends in the world invited us over. And they had made a basket for us and all these things. And just made sure that we weren't alone. Made sure we were cared for. They took the time. They were invested in us. They gave up. They, they sacrificed whatever else they were going to do that night to spend time with people that were complaining and crying and all of these things because they cared. They were committed to us. There are several ways I hope that you can learn from what it means to be in a committed friendship or relationship. 
Number one is we make room for each other, just like the people in Corinth were supposed to do. We make space, we make time for each other. If we don't have time on our calendars for the people that are in our core relationships, that's not commitment. We've got to create time for one another. One of the other things we've got to learn to do is that we've got to learn to, uh, to not avoid conflict. If we avoid conflict, we're not really in a committed relationship where each person has to give a little bit. If one person gives everything and the other person takes everything, that's not a lot of commitment between a mutually committed relationship. It's got to be people who are willing to compromise and to sacrifice because the only way to have commitment in a real holy sense is if both people are mutually committed. And then finally, I think the last thing that we've got to do if we're going to remain committed to each other is that we cannot keep score. We cannot keep score. I remember one day uh, that I was talking to my wife, Julie, and I said, I said, listen, I emptied the dishwasher and I've uh, started a little laundry. Just want to let you know, I'm chipping in. And she said, thanks. I got the kids up. I fed them, got them dressed, put them in the car, took them to school. And about five minutes later, she stopped talking after listing all the things she had done. And I realized, okay, um, I was trying to keep score. Obviously, I'm losing this game. <laughs> we can't keep score because I would lose all the time. So when we keep score, that's not really commitment, right? Giving, sharing, sacrificing is commitment. Keeping score is, in a sense, going to prevent us from being committed because we're going to start to feel and we're not fair judges on this. We're going to start to feel as though we're the ones getting the short end of the stick. We need to, instead of keeping score, we need to keep care. We need to care, keep care in our minds. What can we do for the other person? How can we demonstrate commitment? How can we show up? How can we be there? How can we be present? What can we do to invest and benefit in one another? We don't want to end up like the folks in Corinth who showed that they weren't really committed to each other by their actions. I hope and pray that you'll think through your most important relationships, your core relationships, and how is your commitment level there? Are you putting enough time and energy into those important relationships that will pay you back in dividends and hopefully teach you what it means to be loved by God and to help you love God even more? Where are you lacking in commitment? And what are some steps that you can take to demonstrate that you care? Would you join me in prayer? Holy and loving God, we thank you for your commitment to us. That commitment that is shown in your giving your son to us, for us. That you so love the world that you shared him with us. Help us, God, in our relationships to demonstrate our commitment and patience and presence. And help us, O oh God, to show others that we care. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.